Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and open up, if you've got a Bible with you, to Mark chapter 7, as we are continuing our our, uh, series preaching through the book of Mark. We'll have the scriptures up on the screen as well. Uh, But as you're turning there, I want to share with you a story from an episode of the TV show Parks and Recreation, Parks and Rec, all right? Now, if you're not familiar with it, it's a show starring Amy Poehler. It was a show uh, where she was a part of a Parks and Recreation department uh, in the fictional town, the small town of Pawnee, Indiana. Pawnee, Indiana. And there's there's an episode in season five. It's called Article 2. And the storyline goes that once a year, uh, this town of Pawnee would celebrate what they call Ted Party Day. Ted Party Day. And how they celebrate Ted Party Day is they go and find a guy named Ted and they throw him into the lake. And it was a yearly tradition. Everyone loved it. All right. You can imagine everyone would love it except except Ted. Ted did not love it. But the tradition started because in their town charter, it was written in old timey script, you know, that old cursive that you can barely read. And what the writers of the town charter had intended to write was not Ted Party Day, but Tea Party Day. Tea Party Day. It was to commemorate the great Pawnee tea dump of 1817. Now, this is fictional. Don't check me on my, uh, uh, don't check the history books, okay? Uh, But I guess it was like their own little, like, Boston Tea Party. And so the original town charter had said to dump tea into the lake. Everyone knew this is what they had meant to write, but the, the T, it looked like Ted. The A looked like a D, and so they started dumping Ted into the lake, and it just continued on as a town tradition. And so the episode goes, Ted finally one year gets fed up with this. He asks the city council to do something about it, to change the town charter. But there's one citizen in particular that gets so upset about changing this because it is tradition. It's tradition. You can't mess with a town's tradition, right? I mean, this is what had been handed down from generation to generation. This is what they had always done. And the funny thing and sort of the sad thing about that scenario as I'm watching as as I'm watching this, as I'm watching this particular citizen cling so tightly to tradition, even though he knows that it wasn't, he was distorting the truth of what the actual town charter had intended to write. But as I watched his reaction, as he clung to this tradition, it reminded me a lot of how church people act with their traditions. Church people, we can at times cling so tightly to our traditions that we distort the truth of what God's word actually says. And so this morning, we're going to see how in humanity's prideful pursuit of self-righteousness, truth gets distorted by tradition. Okay, And I'll say it again in case you don't hear anything else this morning. I want you to hear this. We are going to see how in humanity's prideful pursuit of self-righteousness, truth will get distorted by tradition. And so we arrive here now at Mark chapter 7, verse 1. We just saw last week Jesus walk on his water, right? He showed his disciples his glory. He declared himself to be the great I am, God in the flesh who is here to heal us. And we now arrive at verse 1, and we see the Pharisees arrive on the scene. Dum, dum, dum. Does that, does that happen to you guys when you read that the Pharisees arrive on the scene? That's, that's what happens 
to me when I see that the, when I hear and read the Pharisees arrive on the scene. It's sort of like when you're watching a, a movie and, and a character enters the scene and the background music just gets real dramatic, right? And you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know what it is. He looks, I mean, I, look, everything looks okay, but something's telling me I just don't trust this guy, right? And the music's like blaring, like warning, warning, this is a bad guy, right? And so that's, that's what happens when I read about the Pharisees. It usually is with the bad guy music. The bad guy has entered the scene. Because growing up in church, I've just always known them to be the ones that oppose Jesus, the ones who are out to get Jesus, the ones that, that are jealous of Jesus. And so us church people in 2018, we can read about the Pharisees and just assume that there was some background bad guy music as they enter the scene. But listen, put yourself in this scenario, in this situation, in this context. People in that time, that is not how they thought of Pharisees. Pharisees were like the clean-cut, good, moral, religious people of the day. The Pharisees were highly thought of and respected. If, if, we, if we tried to spot a Pharisee today, they would probably look like the guy who's at church every Sunday, well-dressed, clean-cut, gives away 30% of his income, supports missionaries, Bible club president, leads a city group, right? Organizes prayer gatherings, reads his Bible every day, probably has a casting crowns ringtone, right? And if you asked him how he's doing, he'd probably say something like, better than I deserve, brother, right? I mean, like, wow, like, what a guy, what a guy. The Pharisees, on the outside, they are that guy. And if you have a casting crowns ringtone, I did not mean to offend you. That is fine, all right? That is okay. But they've got it all together on the outside, right? They seem to be the ones that follow the commands of God to a T and then some. And so back in that context, there was no bad guy music when the Pharisees walked onto the scene. Everyone saw them as pretty much pretty good. These were God-fearing, right? They followed the commands of God. These were the religious, well-respected people of the day. Jesus, however, has the ability to see their hearts. And this is why he goes after them as often as he does. He sees their hearts and he can see their prideful pursuit of self-righteousness. And he sees how they have allowed their tradition to distort the truth. So look with me now at Mark 7, verse 1. Mark 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing the cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? but eat with defiled hands. Now, at first, at first glance, you can think, hey, 
Like, this, this isn't that bad. The Pharisees are just really into good hand-washing hygiene, right? I mean, they, they've come up from Jerusalem to put this campaign on to help people wash their hands to prevent the spread of infectious disease. Like, they just want them to wash their hands. That's, that's not a bad thing, right? Disclaimer, we are, we are for good hand-washing hygiene, all right? We are for you washing your hands after you use the restroom, and we are for you washing your hands before you eat. But that is not what is going on here, okay? That is not what is going on here. You see, what the Pharisees were good at was taking God's truth, adding their tradition on top of it, and then holding people to a standard that God had not set. And so just to clarify, Jesus and his disciples, they have not broken any law or command of God. They, they, they had not broken the commands that God had given Moses in the Old Testament. Now, now, what God did require in the Old Testament was that the priests of Israel, they were to wash their hands before they entered into his presence and offered sacrifices. And God had given this command as a reminder to the priest and to the people that God is holy. He is perfectly pure. Us in our sin, we are not, and therefore we need to be cleansed. We need to be washed. And so God wanted the priest to go through this purification ritual before they entered into his presence. But what the Pharisees and the religious leaders, what they had done was they took this truth that God had given they added their tradition to it and then extended it to everyone else. And in their prideful pursuit of self-righteousness, they had distorted God's truth with their own tradition. Because that was not a command that God had given that said a non-priest had to do ritual cleansing before they ate lunch. But the Pharisees made a tradition that said you did. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they, why would they make up these traditions and rules that go above and beyond what God said? You see, because it's ultimately easier to clean your hands than it is to clean your heart. Jesus saw what they were doing, and what they were doing, they were adding traditions to truth because many times, if we can be honest, it's way easier to keep a tradition than it is to deal with the truth about your own heart. Right? God had given purification rituals to remind the people of his holiness and their sinfulness and their need for God to provide a way to be cleansed, but instead of dealing with that truth, they came up with rules and traditions so that they could feel as if they cleansed themselves. Let me wash my hands five times more than God told me to so that I can feel good about myself. Distorting truth with tradition. And Jesus calls them out on this in verse 6. He diagnoses the problem. And in his grace, he allows us to, to see as well, to see the Pharisees, and maybe to even see some of us ourselves, he allows us to see them how he sees them. It's like he's, he's taking an x-ray, and he says, let me show you kind of what's on the inside of these religious leaders. So look at Mark 7, verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, 
This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Now, when you read verses like that, all right, lips, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. When you read verses like that, it can be really easy to instantly think of someone else that's like that. Right? I mean, at first read, when you're reading this, it can be our natural instinct to think of those people that are like this. Or that church over there, or that certain denomination, or those people in the past in church history. But if you do that, if that is your instinct to think of those people first, you need to, just in the quietness of your own heart right now, confess to that to God and repent of that. Because this word is for you. You need to hear this this morning. And instead, your response should be, Lord, like, may that not be so of me. Lord, help, help me not just honor you with my lips. Lord, help my heart not be far from you. Lord, help me not worship you in vain. Lord, help me never distort the truth of God for the tra traditions of man. And Jesus looks at these externally religious people who seem like they love God. He looks at their hearts and he calls them hypocrites. Hypocrites. Now the word hypocrite, it's a word that's taken from the Greek theater and it means to play a part on stage. All right? A hypocrite is someone who is acting a part but isn't really sincere about it. They are pretending, they are performing. The outside looks great, but it's all an act. And the result of just acting, of just playing the part, the result is that you worship God in vain. It's worthless worship. It's pointless. It's useless. And not only is it a waste of time, but it is offensive to God to merely honor him with your lips and your heart be far from him. In the last few decades, one of the traditions that has been argued about, uh, maybe, maybe some, some of the biggest arguments in churches recently, has been when we gather, what style of music do we play when we sing together, right? And some people have called it the worship wars. Do we sing hymns? Do we sing praise songs? Are we guitar-led? Are we piano-led? And it's caused some churches to have a traditional service and then a contemporary service. And I'm not saying that's wrong if churches do that. I'm just stating a fact, right? It's caused people to separate their services. It's caused some churches to cater to younger people and other churches to cater to older people. And church, just so you know, I love some hymns and I love some praise songs. There are good hymns and bad hymns. There are some good praise songs and there are most definitely are some bad praise songs out there too, right? But the reason I bring up the worship wars is because it highlights, I think, where we have missed the point altogether. We've, we've just missed it altogether. Our tradition has caused us to distort the truth and we've just missed the point altogether, right? So I don't know when you started going to church or how, when you were raised up in the church or when you maybe went as an adult, but, but I, I don't know if you, if you were raised to, to, where worshiping God was led by a guitar or it was led by a piano, 
but that tradition that's embedded in how we view our singing together has caused us to miss the truth that the kind of worship gathering God cares about is not if it is a traditional service or a contemporary service, but is it a lip service or is it a heart service? Amen. We've, we've missed that point. Are you coming to worship God just with your lips? Or are you coming to worship God with your heart? Listen, if coming to church is your way of just checking off some box on the list of things to do to gain a right standing with God, right? If this is just something you do in your prideful pursuit of your own self-righteousness uh, so that when you stand before God, you can feel good about yourself because you went to church on some Sundays and you sang some songs with God's people. But, but listen, if you are just playing the part, if you are just acting if you are just putting on a good performance, Jesus says you worship him in vain. And your worship is offensive to God. Oh, church, may we not just give lip service to God, but may we come together to worship him from our hearts. And when we sing May we sing not, not just from our lips, but from the very depths of our souls. And this is why we encourage you and why I really think you must prepare to come in here on a Sunday morning. Now, I don't expect you to prepare as much as the preacher or as the musicians, as much time they put in to prepare for this. But at some point on Saturday night and Sunday morning, you've got to have some time to prepare your hearts for worship and not just your lips. Because when it's just our lips, when we are just acting and pretending and going through the motion, our tradition starts to distort the truth. And we end up pridefully pursuing our own righteousness. Warren Wearsby, who's a pastor and author and a professor, he said this. He said, we must constantly beware lest tradition take the place of truth. It does us good to examine our church traditions in the light of God's word and to be courageous enough to make changes. Colossians 2, verse 8, it says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I recently heard of a church that purchased an organ, a pipe organ, for $65,000, all right? Now, it's a small church. We're not judging them for spending that amount of money on a pipe organ. They must really love the organ, and that's, that's fine. That's cool. That's not my point, okay? But they spent $65,000 on a pipe organ, a pretty significant part of the money that they had. They spent it on an organ, but here's the thing. They can't find anyone who knows how to play it. It kind of hurts a little bit. Kevin's like squeaming, like thinking about the budget, you know. Now, now we, there's, there's kind of a lot going on in that situation, right? All right, buying an organ for $65,000, not being able to find anyone that knows how to play it. We could probably dissect that on a few different levels. But, but at the very least, I think we can say someone's tradition or, or maybe even some nostalgia has caused them to spend a lot of money on something that sits there useless in the worship gathering. 
They've poured a lot of money into something that when they gather to worship, it sits there quiet. No sounds going up to the Lord in worship. It, it looks nice. It looks pretty. But no, nothing coming out of it. Listen, if you come in here and just give lip service to God, you are that organ. You've maybe invested a lot of time and money and energy to get looking nice to play the part, but your heart makes no music to the Lord during our worship. And when a church purchases an organ that no one knows how to play, tradition has taken the place of truth. And when you walk in here and give lip service to God, tradition has taken the place of truth. Now, church, I do have some good news for you this morning, but it's going to get worse before it gets better. Look at verse 9, Mark 7, verse 9. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. Okay, we've, we, we've talked some about how in our prideful pursuit of self-righteousness, we distort truth with tradition. Jesus is now going to give a real-life example. He's, he's called them out as hypocrites, as just playing the part, just giving lip service to God, and now he's going to be gracious enough with them to kind of show them how they've been doing it, all right? This is a real-life example. He says, okay, the fifth commandment, it says, honor your father and your mother. That is a truth. That is a commandment from God. Honor your father and your mother. But what was happening was that people were taking the traditions of the elders and the rulers, and they were using the traditions to try to find loopholes around God's truth. They were trying to find ways to get out of doing what God had called them to do. And so honor your father and mother. Think about it. Not only does it mean, right, when you were growing up, kids, as you're growing up, you need to honor your father and your mother. You need to obey them, respect them, Right? But also then, as you grow to be an adult and your parents get a little older, right, you still need to honor your father and your mother and need to take care of them in their old age. Which is why when Britt and I, when we were looking for a house, we really wanted a house uh, that had a guest room in it, right? Because we wanted to have an extra room, uh, not only to, to host people and have people visit and have people over, but so that someday in the future, we could use it to serve and honor and take care of our parents if they needed help. And so, uh, God bless us, we do have a house with a guest room in it, um, so that many, many, many years in the future, uh, many years, for example, yeah, yeah, many years in the future, if the time comes, right, and my parents need help, you know, we have the space that we can take their pool table when we put them in a facility, right? <laughs> so it's ready. We've got, we're ready for it, all right? Oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, but what they were doing was their grown kids, they had elderly parents, and instead of taking care of them, they said their wealth was declared Corbin, 
Okay? Now let me explain the rules of Corbin. Okay? A Corbin was a gift dedicated to God. And so it sounds like a good thing at first, and most of the time it was a good thing. But what people were doing was they were designating their money as Corbin. And the rules of Corbin say that you can't use that money on anyone else, but you can still use it on yourself during your lifetime. And then when you die, then that money goes to God. And so, for example, if your parents needed help, but you didn't really want to help them, you would say, oh no, this money is Corbin, and I'll still spend it on myself And then when I die, then it will go to God. And so that's what people were doing. They were using man-made rules to try to find loopholes out of obeying what God had commanded them to do. Now listen, modern-day church people, we, we do this as well. We add our traditions and rules to God's truth so that we can find loopholes to actually obeying God's truth. We do. Church people at times have said, don't play cards. Don't go to the movies. Men, don't grow your hair too long. Women, don't cut your hair too short, right? Don't educate your kids this way. Don't drink that. Don't eat this. Don't vote for that party. Stop singing to syncopated music. Don't associate with someone who's got that past. Don't celebrate this certain cultural holiday. We've even, we've even said things that rhyme, right? Like don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do which there, there might be some wise dating advice in there, all right? <laughs> Especially the chew part, okay? There might be some wisdom in that, all right? But that's not a Bible verse. And some of you, you might have convictions on some of those things that I've mentioned. And listen, if they are left in their proper place as personal convictions, then that is fine. That is fine. But what religious people do and what hypocrites do And what the Pharisees did, and what church people often do, is they take these traditions or convictions, and they put them on a pathway that leads to their prideful pursuit of self-righteousness. They become a means to an end. They become a means to earning their own right standing with God. And when they are a means to your righteousness, this then distorts the truth. Because we know that the Bible teaches that in order for any of us to stand before God, we need to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, not our own righteousness. But not only does it distort the gospel, but it also distracts us from actually obeying what God has commanded us, right? Because church, it's a lot easier to not play cards than it is to love your neighbor as yourself, Like, that's an actual one, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's a real one, right? It's easier to designate money as Corbin than it is to honor your father and your mother. And it's easier to cut your hair and tuck your shirt in. It's easier to do that than to love your wife as Christ loved the church. We make our own rules and traditions and we end up not obeying the ones that God actually did give us. And so what happens in humanity's prideful pursuit of self-righteousness is instead of seeing the standard of God and realizing that we're going to need a Savior, instead of that, no, we decide we're going to set the bar a little lower and we're going to jump over it ourselves. 
We're going to add our convictions and our traditions to the truth of God's word because our man-made commandments are a lot easier to meet than the truth that God has given us. And then we're going to judge everyone else who's not meeting the standards that we set. But church, I do have some good news for us this morning. Because listen, not only did Jesus come to save the prodigal and the rebel, he also came to save the religious and the self-righteous. And that's good news for us. Amen? Amen. Growing up a church kid, like growing up in the church, I, can, I know and I can feel the pull to pridefully pursue self-righteousness. That is what I default into. That is my instinct. I can tangibly feel the pull to want to pursue my own righteousness. And apart from Christ, all of us, that is our default mode. We want to work for our righteousness. We want to earn our salvation. And I used to falsely think that my testimony was boring. I don't know if any other church kids, if you guys felt this way before, you'd hear these testimonies from people who had gotten into drugs or the party scene. They'd gone through this big rebellious phase, and then they would share about how God turned their life around, changed them, and, and completely brought, brought them back to Christ. And I used to think, man, like I wish I had an exciting testimony like that. Right? I wish I would have gone off the deep end at some point so that now I could boast about how great God was to turn my life around. But you know what he's been showing me these last few years? Is that it takes just as much power, grace, mercy, and supernatural work of Christ to save the religious as it does the rebel. It takes just as much of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ to save someone from self-righteousness as it does from drugs. And many of us, many of us, we need to be saved from our prideful pursuit of self-righteousness. Many of us, we need to be saved from our lip service from meeting the standards that we set and neglecting the ones that God did. And so church people, my heart, my heart aches for you. Like Paul's did for the religious as well. And look at Romans 10. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 10. We'll have it on the screen as well. Romans 10 verse 1. says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now listen, my heart's desire and prayer to God for you is that you may be saved. 
For I have witnessed that you do have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish your own, you did not submit to God's righteousness. And my plea to you this morning is to repent of your self-righteousness and trust Christ who is righteousness for everyone who believes. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What is determining how you think, how you live, and how you pursue a right standing with God? Is it man-made tradition, or is it God's truth? What is, is determining how you think and how you live and how you are pursuing a right standing with God? Is it your tradition and religion, or is it God's truth? Now, you might be thinking that I'm bashing traditions. I'm not. I love traditions. We're coming up on the holidays. I love family traditions. Traditions are fine. I mean, we don't have a guy named Ted to throw into a lake, but we do have a guy named Tim. And if if we all decide to make one day a year, we're going to throw Tim into a pond. Hey, I support that, right? I'm, I'm, I'm for that. I'm for traditions. I'm not against traditions, all right? I'm also not against personal convictions. For example, if in the past you struggled with gambling and you lost all your money because you gambled it away playing poker, and you know that now if you play any card game, you could be tempted into falling back into your gambling addiction, I would hope that you would have enough wisdom and conviction to know that you shouldn't play cards anymore, right? And I would hope that you would then share that with your city group and your friends and your family so that they know by them playing cards, it's causing you to stumble. And out of a love for you, they should refrain from playing cards as well. We all have some personal convictions about things that the Bible does not explicitly restrict or allow. The problem is, the problem is when pride swells up in your heart, When pride seeps out of your heart, what will happen is that you will take that personal conviction about playing cards, which I would say that's a topic I would say we have some Christian liberty in, all right? But but when pride is seeping out of your heart, you will take a personal conviction, and what will happen is that you will take that conviction, and you will put it then on another brother or sister and bind them where God has not bound them. And so if you were to take your conviction about cards and judge me for playing Go Fish and Old Maid, which tells you who I'm playing cards with these days. If you do that, what has happened is that your pride has allowed a personal conviction or tradition. It's allowed it out of, a, out of its proper place and placed it in the pathway of your pursuit of righteousness. You've gone Romans 10, right? In your pride, you've become ignorant of the righteousness of God and you've sought to establish your own. So church, what are you resting on for your right standing with God? 
Tradition or truth? God came to save sinners. God came to save us from our sin. And for many of us, it is the sin of trusting in our own work for our right standing with God. He came to save us from our prideful pursuit of self-righteousness. Now, while self-righteousness and man-made tradition or commands, they are fueled by pride, God has provided us a remedy, and it's called grace. It's called grace. Grace, God's undeserved favor, his unconditional love, his substitutionary work in our place, that grace squashes our pride and enables us to humbly rest in the righteousness of Christ. And church, can you just picture, can you imagine how God's grace can transform a church? How God's grace can completely change the culture of a church? What a church that could be where the gospel is preached, where people repent of their prideful pursuit of self-righteousness and where they humbly rest in the righteousness of Christ. That could be a church that enjoys its tradition in its rightful place and doesn't allow it to distort or distract from God's truth. That could be a church that does not just give lip service to God, but actually worships God with their whole hearts. That could be a church where two people could disagree on something and yet they could be gracious with one another. They could sharpen one another and they could assume the best of one another. I mean, just think about it. That's a church that I would want to be a part of, right? A church where God's grace squashes our pride. That could be a church that doesn't just do things because that's how, he's all, how we've always done things, right? That could be a church that goes back to the word and cares more about how God says to do something than how we've always done it. That could be a church that doesn't get so distracted or divided over these open-handed issues, but instead could celebrate the unity they have over the closed-handed ones. And that could be a church who doesn't feel the need to judge those on the outside because we know there's one who is already going to do that. And we know that church folk need just as much grace as non-church folk. A church where God's grace squashes pride, that could be a church where people don't have to pretend or perform, but they could be real and vulnerable with one another because their own prideful pursuit of self-righteousness has already been set aside and nailed to a cross. What a gracious church that could be. What a forgiving church that could be. What a loving church that could be. And what a biblical church that could be a people who have been freed and enabled to follow God because they know their salvation and they know their righteousness has been ordained by the Father, accomplished by the Son, and sealed by the Spirit. What a church that could be. By God's grace, what a church that will be. I want you to be a part of that. We will become a church like that as we continue to repent of our prideful pursuit of self-righteousness. As we allow God's grace 
to squash our pride. And as we hold tightly to Christ and his word, and we hold loosely our man-made traditions. Let's pray.